If God wants to communicate to you, it won't be a mystery. If God wants to encourage you, He won't send you a riddle that you can't figure out the meaning. We live in an interesting world, don't we? There's a Chinese greeting that goes like this. May you live in interesting times. And I'm not sure if that's a helpful greeting or an unhelpful greeting, whether that's a blessing or a curse. But this greeting, may you live in interesting times, sure hits home for us because one thing is for certain, we live in very interesting times. Interesting is one way to put it right. But we can relate with Daniel because Daniel also lived in very interesting times. Daniel's times are about to get really interesting in chapter 2. As you know, what's coming up in chapter 2 is the vision, the first vision, the main dream, the central vision of the book. And so we may be looking at that today or we may be looking at that next week. But with this vision that Daniel will interpret, comes a drastic change in the world in which Daniel lived, as though he hasn't seen enough changes already. But this is an interesting time for Daniel to live, and it's an interesting time for us to study. We remember that the last verse of chapter 1 gave us a teaser into chapter 2, gave us a connecting phrase there at the end of chapter 1, because Daniel finishes chapter 1 with this phrase that he just drops in, And Daniel remained or continued until the first year of King Cyrus, which was some 60 years in the future to that chapter. So in dropping this final little note here on chapter 1, he's setting us up for chapter 2 because chapter 2 with the vision that's going to come is going to be a vision that's going to speak not only of the passing of Nebuchadnezzar, of Belshazzar, of Darius, but also the coming of King Cyrus, and then on beyond. So that last sentence of chapter 1 set us up for chapter 2. Now, in looking at chapter 2, this, of course, is going to be the vision that we're going to look at. In this vision, we're going to see, well, really, the theme of the book really gets cranked up. I won't give it too much of a teaser. I don't want to give too much of it away. You've probably read the story ahead of time anyway. But In saying this, we say that the point of the book, the main point of the book, is really encapsulated in this vision that we see uh, explained to us in chapter 2. So here we begin in verse 1 of chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. So we're told immediately here this is the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Some people see a problem in that because... Daniel has this three-year training period that began after Nebuchadnezzar takes the throne. In the story, it's going to be evident that Daniel has completed his three-year training program, yet this is the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So some people see some issue with that, but there's not really an issue to be seen there. We just simply need to remind ourselves that our method of counting time, the modern method of counting time, is not the ancient method of counting time. We see this in the Scriptures many, many times that the principle is this, if there is a portion of a day or a portion of a week or a portion of a year, it's oftentimes counted as the full year or the full month or the full week or what have you. Just think of Jesus's time in the tomb. As Jesus is in the tomb one night, one whole day, and then the first part of the next morning, and we're told that's three days because it was a part of three days. That's very typical ancient method of, ta- of counting time. 
So Daniel now has completed his three-year training period, which would have been part of one year, another full year, and a part of another year, which coincides perfectly now with the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So in this year, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. Last week we talked about this preparation for Daniel and his friends to be prepared to stand before the king. So this is what's happening. They're coming and they're standing before the king in his court. So they came in and stood before the king, verse 3. And the king said to them, I had a dream. And my dream is troubled to know, and my spirit, I'm sorry, is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and as we've said before, from that point the book switches to Aramaic and will be in the Aramaic language until the end of chapter 7. We talked about the reasons behind that, and we saw that the reasons behind that is is due to the fact that chapter 2 through chapter 7 has to do with God's words of what will happen to the earthly kingdoms. This is the vision and everything that the vision is going to bring about. And so this pertains to the earthly kingdom, so it's written in the lingua franca of the day, the, the common universal language of the day, which was Aramaic. Then when we come to the portions of Scripture that then interpret those things for the people of God and what this means from the heavenly perspective, it'll switch back to the Hebrew at the beginning of chapter 8, which will be the language of God's people. So from this point now through the end of chapter 7, we'll be talking about Scriptures that are written to us in Aramaic. So again, verse 4, Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. There's a little bit of foreshadowing there because the vision, the main point of the vision, or at least one of the main points of the vision, is going to be, Nebuchadnezzar, you won't live forever. Neither will your kingdom live forever. But they say, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. So they're prepared. They've got this covered. They've got their interpretation books. And the way that that would work was there would be these different formulas. And if you dreamed about, oh, I don't know, eating a cow that wasn't dead. Well, that would meant that this was the meaning of that dream. And then if you dreamed about a star falling to the earth, and well, that was the, that was the interpretation of that. And so it was a pretty simple thing. They would hear the dream and they would just line it up with different aspects in their dream interpretation books. And they would say, we got you covered, king. Here's the meaning of your dream. And now we'll collect our pay for that. So they expect this to happen. Oh, king, live forever. Tell us the dream. We'll be happy to show you the interpretation. However, verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. So here comes the conflict. The conflict is the king is troubled with these dreams. He's called the people in to tell him not just the interpretation, but also to tell the dream itself. So some people speculate about this. Why was Nebuchadnezzar not willing to tell the dream? Some people think maybe he didn't remember the dream. You ever had the dream that you don't remember, but yet it was a troubling dream, but the trouble from the dream remains, even though the details of the dream have gone? Or maybe it was a happy dream, and the happiness from the dream remains, even though you can't remember what about the dream made you happy? So maybe Nebuchadnezzar didn't remember the dream, and he just remembers that he was very troubled by it, and so he wants them to tell him. I guess that's possible. I think it's far more likely that Nebuchadnezzar is actually very savvy here. Nebuchadnezzar was a very competent leader. Nebuchadnezzar, as we said before, basically was the Babylonian Empire. 
He brought it to the power that it was at this time. And very shortly after his death, Babylon collapsed in upon itself. So Nebuchadnezzar was very capable. He was a very able leader. And he is probably savvy enough to not be fooled by this cut and paste sort of dream interpretation approach. In addition to that, he gives this threat. He says, well, if you don't tell me the interpretation of the dream, then not only, not only am I going to kill you, I'm going to come and kill your family and tell your house down too, which meant that he was going to kill all of their descendants, that their lines would then be cut off. Now, remember, this is one Chaldean speaking to another Chaldean. We mentioned last time that all, Chal- all Babylonians were not Chaldeans. All Chaldeans were Babylonians, but not the other way around. The Chaldeans were an ethnic group. They were the dominant ethnic group among the Babylonians. And so Nebuchadnezzar is speaking to his own ethnic group here, the Chaldeans. And he says to them, if you don't tell me the dream and tell me the dream right now, then you're done for. So why would Nebuchadnezzar make such a rash threat to the Chaldeans? Well, we know from the story that Nebuchadnezzar has sort of a fly off the handle kind of personality and he needs to be believed. They need to believe that he's fully capable of doing what he just threatened to do because, well, first of all, what's he going to do to the three friends of Daniel? Uh, I'll throw you to the furnace and he throws them to the furnace, sure enough. Or think about King Zedekiah. Zedekiah, who the last thing he saw was all of his sons put to death and then they put his eyes out and drug him to, to Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar is fully capable of doing this and they know it. Now, the threats would probably not have been as unreasonable as we seem to interpret them to be or see, or they, we seem to understand them to be because, let's think about this. Nebuchadnezzar lived in the ancient world and he was a dictator in the ancient world. Dictators, even in the modern world, but particularly in the ancient world, dictators tend to always lose their throne by way of murder. So you always were sort of looking over your back. Now, Nebuchadnezzar just had a dream. And he doesn't understand the dream. I think he remembers it, but he doesn't understand the dream. That's going to be the whole point of the chapter. However, that's not to say that Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand anything about it. Certainly, Nebuchadnezzar got the gist. The dream is about a statue with a golden head, and the statue gets destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar probably realizes the dream could be about him. He could be the statue. And so maybe this is trying to tell him something about some treason, some treachery that's taken place in his kingdom. And so I think right now he puts on this suspicious nature, probably rightly so, because this destruction of the statue, well, it has to be probably about Nebuchadnezzar himself because Nebuchadnezzar was just that kind of person that everything was about him, right? Remember the old Carly Simon song? You're so vain. You probably think this song is about you. You know, that's Nebuchadnezzar. He's so vain that he probably thinks this statue is about him and it really is about him. So he makes this threat. He wants to make sure that they understand he doesn't want some kind of cut and paste interpretation. He wants the real thing. And if you who claim to be in contact with the gods can't come through with this, then just know this is the last thing you won't come through for in your life. So he makes this threat. And they respond, verse 8, But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Now, therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. If not, then you're done for. Now, the picture that you're supposed to have at this point would be this picture of Babylon as this place of great fear and oppression because it is the 
metaphoric kingdom of evil, right? Babylon is the kingdom of evil in the scriptures. And so metaphorically and realistically, it is the metaphor for evil. And so we're supposed to begin imagining what it would have been like to have been in such a position as these poor Chaldeans who have no ability to do this whatsoever. And yet now, not only are they going to be killed, but their families and everything as well. So this dark, oppressive, this this is what it's like to live under the reign of evil. So verse 7, they answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation as if they didn't hear him clearly the first time. Verse 8, the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. You're stalling. You're stalling because you can't do this. So I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to gain time while you come up with something out of your sleeve or something. You're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time times change. So Nebuchadnezzar says, if you can't do this, then I know that you've been lying to me this whole time. All along, you've been telling me that you can interpret dreams and you're in touch with the gods and you know all these things. But now, if you don't do this, then I know that you've been lying to me the whole time reminds us of God's words through the prophet Jeremiah when Jeremiah confronts the false prophets of his day with these similar words, saying in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 25 through 26, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the hearts of the people who prophesy lies? That's the nature of a dream, is it can be what you say it is, And it can mean what you say it means. So Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm fallen for that. There is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till all the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So they said a mouthful there. And what they said is a mixture of false and truth. So they said, only the gods can do this. Partly true. Only the God can do this, of course. But then they say, only the gods who don't dwell with man can do this. Now, That's where we know that the God who reveals mysteries, the God who answers visions, the God who sends visions, is the God who dwells with man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. So this God, who is not only the giver of dreams and the interpreter of dreams, but also the giver of all things, lives among us, with us, not as the Babylonians, not as the Chaldeans supposedly think. So this is a good opportunity for us to take a, just a pause and think biblically about dreams. Because dreams are something that we all have, right? And we've all had dreams that were disturbing. We've all had dreams that were curious. We've all had dreams that were exciting. And what have we always done? What's the tendency to always do with those dreams? Ask, what does that mean? 
Is it trying to tell me something that's going to happen? Is God trying to tell me something through this weird dream that I had? And so that's a very natural thing for us to have those questions about dreams. And then we hear people that'll talk about maybe God speaking in a dream, or then we read it in the scriptures of God speaking through dreams. And I think it creates within us just this great curiosity and probably also a lack of thinking well about dreams and whatnot. And that can kind of be a dangerous thing because sometimes we can have dreams that are really off the charts and we can start trying to go about maybe interpreting some meaning from that and whatever meaning we come up with. Maybe it's a disturbing meaning or maybe it's a, an encouraging meaning, meaning we don't know. And so it's, it's a good opportunity for us to just pause and just think about dreams. Now, We've said this before, but it's important to remind ourselves here that God communicates through dreams and visions. However, the frequency with which God communicates through dreams and visions is inversely proportional to the presence of truth within the society that the person lives in. That was a long sentence that basically says, the more truth that's present in the society that you live in, the less frequently God communicates through dreams and visions. There are vast stories that are believed, entirely believable. There are, right now I could tell you three books, right off the top of my head, three books that you could read that detail for you dream after dream after dream of people living in Muslim countries, Muslim contexts, in which they had a dream about Jesus. And in that dream, they didn't understand this Jesus figure And so they knew a Christian and they went and asked the Christian and through that they came to faith. There are gobs of stories like that. But those are stories that come from cultures in which the presence of truth in that culture is much subdued. The presence of the scriptures as well as the presence of the true church. The presence of the church within a society changes the access to truth, the presence of truth in that society, as well as the accessibility of the scriptures in that society. And so the more present, the more accessible that truth is, the less God tends to communicate through dreams and visions. This is not to say that he doesn't, even in cultures like ours. He certainly can and certainly does. Anything that he communicates through a dream would be in agreement with scripture and it would not go beyond what Scripture says. But God does communicate th- through dreams. Anybody ever, heard, ever had a dream about Jesus? I have. I had a dream once, just a wonderful dream, that I dreamed that Jesus came back. And the moment He showed up, I woke up. But I mean, it was just a wonderful dream. So God can do that. He can communicate to us through dreams. But what are we to understand those dreams to mean? Here is... Let me give you two important things to kind of put into your pocket and remember when it comes to dreams. The next time you wake up and dream that you forgot to put on your clothes and went to work without clothes on and then you you get to work and you peel a banana and it turns out to be a block of cheese and then there's your third grade teacher who's really your mom and you you start wondering what all this is about. The next time that happens, two things to remember. Number one, God never plays hide-and-seek with His children. He never plays tease games. If God wants to communicate to you, it won't be a mystery. If God wants to encourage you, He won't send you a riddle that you can't figure out the meaning. 
In the Scriptures, God communicates through dreams and visions frequently. But the only time His dreams or visions are not understood is when they are sent to a pagan. Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, etc. Okay? When they're sent to God's children, they're not in doubt about what God was communicating. Think about Paul and the dream of the Macedonian man. Right? Paul knew exactly what God was saying to him. And that's the pattern in Scripture, that if God does choose to communicate in that way, and you are His child, it'll be clear what He's saying. He doesn't want you to pull your hair out trying to figure out this riddle. Now, if there is a dream that doesn't seem to have meaning, then either, number one, you're not God's child, or number two, this is probably the most likely thing, it wasn't a dream that has meaning. It was just a dream. So those two things to remember is that if God wants to say something to us and He chooses to give us a word of encouragement or support through a dream, maybe we dream that we see Jesus or maybe we dream that we're in our inheritance, then it'll be clear to us and we won't struggle trying to figure out what this meant and what this didn't mean. Okay, So that's a biblical way to think about dreams. The scary thing about dreams, or the danger, I should say it this way, the dangerous things about, thing about dreams is this. It's the same danger that we have when, with people that I call sign seekers. Sign seekers are those people that seek direction from God through means other than His two main central ways of communicating to us. The two ways that God communicates to us are, number one, His Word. Number two, His people. So God communicates to us through His Word and through His people. And that is by far the main means that God communicates to us. But then there are sometimes these sign-seeker type of people that they want, to, they want to get direction from God from means other than those things. And so they look for signs in everything. Show me the signs. They're, they're Gideon, right? Remember the story of Gideon with laying out the fleece and everything? That is not a story in the Bible that's given to you for you to copy. It's a story given to you in the Bible for you to say that man lacked faith. So there's these sign seekers that are just asking God, God, if you want me to do this, then show me this or show me that or or show me this. And oftentimes those signs can become, guess what? Whatever you want. The sign really just becomes what you want it to be. And there's no objectivity to it. It's all subjective. And the same danger comes when we try to try to import meaning into dreams is it becomes whatever you want. Which is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar caught on to. And he said, no, no, no. We're going to have this test. You're going to tell me the dream first and then we'll go from there. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.